Happy Tuesday, and welcome to Not Boring Founders. I'm your host, Packy McCormick. I write a newsletter called Not Boring, have a venture fund called Not Boring Capital, and this podcast is kind of the third leg of that stool. It is exactly what it sounds like it is. Every week, multiple times a week, I get to have conversations with founders who are building the future, whether that's because I'm writing about their company, or I'm writing about their space, or because I might be investing in their company. And normally those are just private one-on-one Zooms, But some of those conversations that I'm having with them, I wish that I had hit record on the conversation. So this podcast is just an attempt to hit record and try to catch lightning in a bottle for the second time. Most of the founders that I talk to on this podcast are founders that I've invested in through Not Boring. And this is a chance for them to tell their story and for me to tell you why I'm so excited about the companies. Hopefully because of our relationship, I can get a little bit more out of them than they'd give up on a normal podcast. Today, we have one such conversation with Abrar Ilhaq the CEO and founder of Taza. Taza is a B2B agricultural marketplace in Pakistan that's growing super, super quickly. What I enjoyed most about the conversation is that Abrar has hands-on experience growing one of the fastest growing marketplaces in the region, Kareem, which competed head-to-head with Uber until Uber was forced to acquire it for $3.1 billion. And so Abrar shares some of the lessons that he took from Kareem and how he's using that to rebuild a B2B marketplace from the ground up. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Not Boring founder, Abrar Ohak. Abrar, could you, to start, just tell us quickly the one-liner, what Taza does? So Taza is a B2B equity marketplace that provides access to market and access to capital to millions of farmers and businesses, not only in Pakistan, but in the, in the Middle East region. How'd you come up with the idea in the first place? What's your background? How'd you get here? Me and my co-founder, Mohsen, we were working at Kareem at one point in time. Kareem is this regional super app, which was acquired by Uber and an entity that really changed the game for startups in the region from talent perspective, from a fundraising perspective and all that. So we were working there. We'd built technology businesses ground up. We believed in the power of technology. It was a post-COVID period. We were thinking about, you know, what are we doing with our lives? Period of reflection. And, you know, at that point in time, we said that, you know, okay, you know, so we've done something for Kareem. Let's solve a Pakistan-specific problem. Let's solve something huge, something which is complex and something that we have the ability to solve for. And we looked at multiple spaces and the ads tech space come all the boxes. It was a super large space. Pakistan, it's 60 to $100 billion in size. It's uh, 20% of our GDP, 40% of our workforce. It's the largest employer. You know, it is rife with inefficiencies. So, you know, it was a large, complex problem. And, you know, building marketplaces, fintech, supply chain is something that we already had, you know, we knew a thing could do about. So that's how we ended up building Tata. Can you take a little bit more into the Kareem story and what you learned there? I think it's so fascinating that Uber tried to compete and then was forced to buy them. Can you walk us through how that happened and why you think Kareem ended up winning there? So I think it was a lot of factors, but I think it, a lot can be attributed to one man who's, you know, Mudasir, who's the co, who was the co-founder and chief executive of Kareem. You know, he built a very mission-driven organization. He built an organization that could compete with a very, you know, a much well-funded player and somebody who had better technology, who had, you know, better, even, you know, a to attract better talent. What Kareem did in the region was a function of building a uh, you know, base of talent, which you know eventually led to a snowball effect. Pakistan, they hired somebody called Junaid. And then he built a team which is super strong. And then you know that team eventually brought Uber to its knees, so to speak. Eventually, with, with you know, Pakistan is probably one of those rare markets where ba- Kareem is a market leader. It was just a function of a lot of mission-driven building together hustling their way, finding finding that that little inch or finding that little edge that eventually sort of separated Kareem from Uber and then eventually Uber, because of this relentless of Kareem, eventually Uber had to give and, you know, as they were going into the IPO, 
they had to tie up this loose end and eventually they had to go out killing. I love it. What did you learn from from that experience that you've taken now to Taza? We learned quite a few things. The region was not the same from a startup experience perspective. There was no fast growing startup before this. There were a few, but you know, they were operating their own, in their own sort of uh, spaces. But what Kareem did was it mainstreamed the hustle culture. It mainstreamed punching above your weight culture. What we built, you know, at Kareem in a very small period of time is, you know, equivalent to some of these hundreds of years old companies in Pakistan from a GFV perspective, from an EBITDA perspective. And what we learned was, you know, how do you build marketplaces fast? How do you scale them? How do you solve some of the late stage problems? You know, you at different stages of the company, you you face different set of problems. Early stage is different, middle stage is different. And then we eventually also got the opportunity and, you know, the privilege to solve for the late stage problems that Kareem had, including, you know, turning it turning it profitable, making sure that, you know, this turns into a well-oiled machine that can run on its own. We learned quite a few things and it was mainly because of us just having the privilege of being there at different stages of the company. So where are you in the Taza journey now? At some point, hopefully you're going to be able to solve those late stage problems, but where are we now? So we're like very, very early in, in a very large space, in a very large problem. Taza, we, we we started out by us just sort of going to the market, ring fencing up, you know, a set of 25 customers, trying to figure out ways to serve them. This large, you know, B2B marketplace that we wanted to build started out as a very crude, me and Mohsin and a couple of other guys just sort of going to these retailers, telling them, you know, hey, we want to serve you. How do we serve you? This, and it's a completely white space. Nobody was serving them before. And they said that, you know, okay, you know, this is what we need. Early in the morning, we used to fulfill their demand. It was almost two months of complete failure. You know, we were failing, 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 you know, but what we had learned at Kareem was one of the core values was large, fast and hydrate. What this allowed us was, you know, in just these two months, period, you know, what we learned was what exactly is the right business model to scale this business. And that eventually led us to having that conviction to, you know, leave our cushy jobs, put in our papers, call a few people up, you know, hey, we're doing something interesting. You know, we don't know exactly what we're doing, but, you know, just join us and, you know, figure out with us. And um, that, you know, thanks to those people, they came in. We got very funded, very quickly funded up. You know, we got very quickly funded for our first round. Uh, Global Founders Capital came in. They, They had seen, you know, this model work in multiple other markets. And, you know, they looked at us and they said, you know, the founders seem all right. Let's sort of fund them and, you know, make sure that they grow. August was when we got funded first. We, we had a GMV of about $20,000 in August. January is we is the month that we most recently closed and we had a GMV of about a million dollars in January, which essentially means that we grew by about 50 times within this short period of time. So that's where we are on our journey. Wow. So can you walk us through the, the transaction and, and end-to-end what the process looks like? And if you can, kind of weave unit economics in there. So on that million dollars in GMV, who gets what in the in the supply chain? Bring process works. Our customers place their orders on an app, uh, which you know provides them discoverability, which provides them order tracking capability, which provides them order ordering history capability. So they go through go to the app, select the SQs that they want, select the delivery time that they want, uh, select the payment method that they want. You know, there's uh, this happens somewhere around seven. Uh, at the same time, based on a demand forecast, our Teams have already built, uh, you know, built the, built the, you know, the inventory in the system for the right products, uh, and then that inventory moves within the supply. Taza is built, you know, one warehouse to the other, closer to the customer, like Amazon, and then you know, early in the morning, the last mile fulfillment for the customer happens. Uh, on the back end of this, starting from the demand forecast, uh, what we already have is a list of suppliers, farmers, vendors on board, which provide that produced to Taza, that part of the supply chain is still offline. Q2 2022 is when we're going to digitize that part. 
that that product product comes into our warehouse and then eventually sort of gets shipped out. Given that we are a fully uh, integrated market, we're sort of back full stack marketplace. We buy, produce, and then we sell it. And the difference between the two prices becomes our spread or our gross margin. And that gross margin is supposed to fund all the variable and the fixed costs. The current gross margin is between five and ten percent. The great thing about our business is that due to extreme inefficiencies in the supply chain, if this is cracked properly, the gross margin potential in the business is more than thirty percent. So that's how the unit economics of the business work. So contribution margins end up being fairly thin, but you said it's a sixty to a hundred billion dollar annual market. Do you think this has winner take all dynamics? Do you expect to take a huge piece of the market? How do you think about the the overall marketplace? So it's uh, it it does seem like a winner takes all market, basically the part that we're doing and the part we're doing is providing them access to market and access to capital because we're also in a in a capital constrained environment where you know the farmers that we work with millions of them are so fragmented so broken that you know they need access to capital and the existing banking system cannot serve them because they don't have, they don't have any data on them or any collateral on them our transaction data provides us the ability to pass loans to them same on the demand side where we're talking about millions of businesses that you know, based on not having a lot to their name are, you know, out of the existing banking system. So we have the ability based on the transaction data that we have to provide lending to them. So this access to market and access to capital business in this 60 to $100 billion market does seem like a winner takes most, a winner takes all base, has all the features of that. And uh, given that we're very early in this uh, with very little competition to speak of, we believe that we have the ability to build a very large business here, progressively advance the moat that we're building around us, which is, you know, our customers, our technology staff, our culture and even just the ability the flywheel that we're building on both supply and demand side which over a period of time will almost make it uh, insurmountable for other people to come in you mentioned that there are companies doing something similar in other markets around the globe who do you look to as kind of best in class when when you think about businesses like yours so we when we think about inspirations we think about frubana in latin america that is a company that has slowly went gradually mastered the game it has it is a company which has you know you know unit economics to sort of be inspired about it has the growth trajectory to be inspired about they've quickly mushroomed into multiple parts of latin america and you know that just that just sounds very exciting they've also been able to pass themselves into other parts of restaurant operations business which is also very, very exciting, inspiring. One other company that we look at from a different business model is Fair, fair.com. So that's a, that's a global B2B marketplace. And, you know, for, for us, we also sometimes are looking at, you know, once we sort of start expanding into different parts of the Middle East, what we also want to do is, you know, build that part of the business, which is a regional or a global B2B marketplace for food products. So, you know, these are the two companies that we look at when we think about inspirations. So what is it about Pakistan right now? The market is really heating up. What do you think the factors are contributing to that? I think Pakistan is one of the last conquered markets by the venture capital or the private equity or the growth growth capital world. It is a play, space where, you know, the valuations are still under control. You know, our business with our kind of traction in, in the US or in one of the, one of these developing markets, including Indo, Indonesia and India, would be fetching a significantly higher multiple. In Pakistan, those uh, those discounts are still available because it's still a market which is unnoticed by, by most of, at least most of the tier one, tier two, tier three VC world. A lot of people have woken up to it, uh, credit to them, you know, have been early risk takers in the market but there are multiple benefits of investing in Pakistan including you know one of the largest youngest population in the world you know proliferating 3G and 4G penetration in Pakistan uh, you know smartphone penetration is going really high the younger population is also very tech savvy so that is also happening the market's population is pretty high so we'd be probably the fifth largest population in the world you know there's so many other tailwinds and then of course yeah, on top of that when you look at you know how underfunded the overall market is um, it still seems like you know a great place to invest in right now look at Pakistan 
Pakistan, I think about India five years ago, it was early market, you know, people were investing. But the result of those investments today is that, you know, every other week you see a new unicorn coming out of India. I believe that, you know, Pakistan is just, you know, four to five years behind that curve. And, you know, all those great businesses that you see in developing markets are going to be built in Pakistan over the next five years. The quality of founders is improving. All on capital ability is also improving. The, the potential has been always there. Place to in time to invest in Pakistan and build a company in Pakistan also. Yeah, if you look at a bunch of different graphs, I think India is maybe seven to 10 years behind China on a bunch of different metrics. And so if Pakistan's there, then you're maybe 12 years away from these like multiple kind of $100 billion uh, companies. Do you look at Pinduoduo, what they're doing on the uh, food delivery side as well? And is there any inspiration that you take from China? Because it feels like they do things a little bit differently. So, so Pinduoduo model in the facility model in Latin America is something that is very interesting. We've been watching it from afar. What we also know is that, you know, if you want to build that model, you know, it is important that you have the kind of control on supply that we are building on our B2B model. Because if you if you go go in there and you know try to solve all parts of the value chain, you know you want to solve the you know pickup point, you want to solve the supply part, you you want to solve you know customer acquisition part and all that. So it becomes a bit too much. It becomes a bit overwhelming. So what we know is that you know what we're sitting on is the ability or the optionality to get into that kind of business at any point in time. But before we get there, I think uh, what's important for us is also to build pedigree in the kind of business line that we are in, which is you know building a B two B marketplace and you know also expanding regionally. But what we know is that, you know, that optionality exists on the table all the time. And uh, what we also know is that, you know, to build that kind of optionality, you wouldn't, any, if anybody wants to come in and try to, try to do that, he, they would need one to one and a half years. So we're, we're sitting pretty on top of that, uh, that uh, optionality and uh, are, you know, waiting for the right time to execute something like that. But at this point, the B2B part of the business also at least, you know, seems very interesting and uh, very exciting. So we're sticking to what we do at this point and, you know, building the uh, competitive advantage in the mode around that part of the business at this point. You're building this infrastructure on this B2B marketplace, biggest kind of, you know, chunkiest piece of the market to go out and attack. But then you do have optionality in all sorts of ways. You mentioned the fintech opportunity, maybe down the line, there's the B2C opportunity. How do you think about sequencing all of that and when the right time to layer different pieces of the business on our... So the fintech side is something that we've already started working on because that fits very well into the uh, access to market problem or the B2B marketplace problem that we solve. So that is something that we've already started executing both on the supplier and demand side. As far as the regional expansion on, on for example, transitioning into something like FAIR, we've already started building some infrastructure towards that where we started serving customers in the Middle Eastern market. What we think about is that, you know, there's a core team that, you know, solves the core problems of the business and then there is there are set project leaders or vertical, you know, new vertical heads or what we call big bets over here. And then those people are trying to execute those, you know, side pieces and figuring out, you know, how they, how, how well they go. These are people who get the allocation, the budget allocation and everything. And uh, what they are supposed to be is business owners who are trying to single-handedly or, you know, with, with small teams trying try and solve solving those problems. So we haven't really started experimenting on the B2C side of the business. Uh, we still feel that, you know, that we need some, some kind of, you know, pedigree on the supply side before we get in there. But the other two parts, we've already started executing through these standalone teams and the idea is to once they're able to take it to a certain level we put our feet on the gas pedal and you know start accelerating but at this point in time they're in the exploring exploring phase so that's how we think about it there's a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to this so i'd love to even just take a layer deeper on that like how big is the team overall what percent do you have dedicated to the the big bets on the side do you meet x number of weeks and say like check in on progress are there particular milestones they need to hit to pour more money on or is it 
more art than science, all the nitty gritty of how to do big bets on the side, because I think that's an important thing to be able to do. So these are very small teams. So for example, if I talk about the core team right now at Daza, it's about 60 people. The team that was working on these big bets is around four to five people. They're completely cut off from the core business. They're, they have no accountability over there. These are people who we also believe have higher potential than, you know, the rest of, and they're, they're also people who are okay with more amount of uncertainty and, you know, going into completely unnavigatable markets. So these are people, we've also handpicked these people to get into these, you know, big bets. In terms of the frequency of how how often do we, we almost have daily standups with these people, just 10, 15 minutes, wherein, you know, they keep, they give us, you know, they, they tell us how, what they've learned, what are the, how are they thinking about this? How do they want to go about these small transactions that they're doing? And uh, we, most of the time, just try to listen to them, absorb what they're saying. And, you know, if there is any capital allocation to see that needs to happen or a resource allocation that decision that needs to happen or any vision-based guideline that we can provide them we generally try to avoid that because they're probably the best people to do this but if there's anything that you know has to do with the vision of the company and uh, some things that we've learned we provide that kind of feedback and you know they, they go back to the drive board they keep working so we try to keep a high frequency of interaction with these people they're handpicked uh, they have no business accountability and the only accountability that they have is building these bets on the side and in terms of the timelines we st still too early in our you know life we, we're a seven month old company so for, you know, give them quite a lot of leeway to sort of um, experiment at all, but uh, we don't impose hard timelines on them. We just tell them, you know, as is the case with the core business, we want everything yesterday. Just think about that as a timeline and, you know, go and execute. I love that. For the last question, what, I'm, what I'd love to do is just put your like most optimistic hat on. In 10 years, if everything goes right, the bets work out, they all fit together nicely. What does Taza look like? And then what does that mean for the country, the region, the world, like think, think big here. So what Taza is eventually going to transition into is this global B2B, B plus B2C food, food company. It is going to be involved in global trade of food. It's going to take a large part of the global food trade. It's also going to be, you know, distributing and solving some of these supply chain inefficiencies in developing markets where there are, there's a space to do that. It is also a B2C company and we think about some, 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 somebody like Uber right now, hundred billion dollars in size. That's something that we want to aim for. The biggest food company in the world, uh, that's how we're thinking about this. And this is solving global food security problems. The biggest food company in the world, $100 billion solving yeah. food insecurity. It sounds like a pretty good thing to be able to do in, in the next decade. Abroad, thanks so much for coming on. Where can people find you and find... Oh, you could, you could come to our LinkedIn page. Uh, we, we have most of our information curated over there. We can, you can also find us on www.tazatech.com. And you could reach out to us on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook, Instagram. We're everywhere. So, you know, it is very easy to find us. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. I know it's late, so have a great evening and uh, talk to you soon. Thank you for having us. So we are back for a little extra bonus content. As soon as we stopped recording, we started talking about whether it was good or not to include numbers like GMV and gross margin and things that companies often honestly don't reveal. And so we got back and forth to talking and I really liked uh, the way that Abra approached it. So pretty much what I said was, hey, if you think that it's a competitive disadvantage to you for your competitors to know these numbers, then we can take it out. Otherwise, I think it's interesting to keep in so people can really kind of understand how the business works. That's the point here. And I, I really liked your answer. So could you kind of repeat the way that you you think about that? So Pakistan, uh, like I said, Pakistan is a very small market from a tech standpoint. Uh, everybody knows everyone. Everybody knows each other's numbers. And eventually it's the execution that really uh, differentiates one company from the other. And uh, we've been very, so we have very strong confidence in our execution. And we believe that, you know, we are the team that is going to do this. So we are very confident that we, we will be able to do it. I love that. All right.
Now we're out for real. Everybody have a great day and we'll talk to you soon. 